The Da Da Di Da Da Code by Robert Rankin, Chapter 4. So how do we go about cracking this code? asked Johnny a few minutes later. In the company of his non-corporeal companion, Mr. Giggles the Monkey Boy, three-quarters of a pint of King Billy, and a packet of fancy nuts, which O'Fagan had discovered hanging upon a card that he never knew he had, so to speak. Johnny had repaired to a dark and mysterious corner of the middleman's saloon bar. "'It's rather dark and mysterious in this particular corner,' observed Mr. Giggles, settling his hairy self upon a bar stool. "'There are many legends attached to this public house, and this particular dark and mysterious corner in particular, as I'm sure you know.' "'I don't care,' said Johnny. "'In fact, I'm not interested at all.' "'It is a fact well known to those who know it well,' continued Mr. Giggles, "'that it was in this very dark and mysterious corner "'that the legendary blues singer Robert Johnson recorded his thirtieth composition.' "'Johnny Hooker supped at his beer. "'Robert Johnson, king of the Delta Blues, never came to England, "'and he never recorded a thirtieth composition.' He recorded 29 compositions, and that is a fact well known to those who know it well, and I am one of those who do. Toward only so, said Mr. Giggles, helping himself to nuts. Tis so, said Johnny. Now give me some of those nuts. Mr. Giggles passed them over, or appeared to, or didn't at all, because he didn't exist, or whatever. They're a tad too fancy for my taste anyway, he said. But this is definitely where Johnson made his final recording. You can still see his initials faintly visible, carved there in the tabletop, beside the burn marks. And Mr. Giggles crossed himself and kissed an invisible rosary. Johnny Hooker glanced at the table. There were many scratchings to be seen upon its sullied surface. A couple of them did look a bit like an R and a J. He never came to England, said Johnny. He did too, said Mr. Giggles. I knew him well. I thought you were my imaginary friend, Johnny said. I thought I thought you up. You thought me back, said Mr. Giggles. I've been around on and off for many a year. Madness never dates, eh? Johnny downed the last of his beer. I go where I'm needed, said Mr. Giggles. And I haven't always looked like this. When I knew Johnson, I was a great big buck-toothed black man. Is this really leading anywhere? Johnny asked because I thought we were setting to to crack the da-da-dee-da-da code so that I might avail myself of whatever wealth there is for the taking. Money can't buy you happiness, said Mr. Giggles. That is a supposition I would like to test through experience, said Johnny. And seeing as I am really miserable now, I do not believe that a great deal of money could possibly make things worse rather than better. So, said Mr. Giggles, about Robert Johnson. I don't want to hear about Robert Johnson. Robert Johnson cannot possibly have anything to do with me cracking the da-da-dee-da-da code. I would hardly have brought him up if he wasn't relevant. Johnny Hooker tapped his empty glass upon the table. You are a liar, he declared. All you ever do is distract and confuse me. I try to think straight, try to get my life on track, to be like other people. Mr. Giggles giggled. And you interrupt me, Johnny glared. Like that. You're in my head, talking your toot, keeping me out of kilter. I'm like the brother you never had. But I do have a brother, only who won't speak to me because I'm a nutter who's always talking to himself. I'm like a different brother that you never had. A far nicer one, with a smiley face. Mr. Giggles smiled at Johnny, his pointy teeth a twinkle in the gloom. So do you really want to hear the legend or not? And it's relevant, is it? Bound to be, said Mr. Giggles. Bound to be. 
Johnny Hooker returned to the bar, where he purchased a further pint of King Billy. Then he returned to the dark and mysterious corner. "'Are you sitting comfortably?' asked Mr. Giggles. Johnny Hooker sat down and nodded. "'Then I'll begin.' And with that he did. "'As you must know,' said Mr. Giggles, "'the legend of Robert Johnson runs to this. He was not a particularly good blues singer and guitarist way down in the delta of the U.S. of A. way back in the 1930s. And, as legend has it, he went down to the crossroads at midnight with a black cat's bone in his hand and sold his soul to the devil.' The devil appeared, in the shape of a big, well-dressed black man, and he returned Robert Johnson's guitar. And after that, Robert Johnson became the greatest blues guitarist of them all. When Keith Richards first heard recordings of Johnson, he asked who the other fellow was who was playing the guitar accompaniment. But Johnson did the whole lot on his own, in one take with no overdubs. Which Richards considered to be impossible because you can't finger all those notes that he did at the same time. But then you see... After Johnson had sold his soul to the devil, he always played with his back to the audience, and folk who were backstage and took a little peep swore that he now had six fingers on his left hand. And took a little peep swore that he now had six fingers on his left hand. But he never came to England, said Johnny. Did too, said Mr. Giggles. Please, listen if you will. The accepted story is that Robert Johnson recorded just 29 songs during his lifetime before dying mysteriously at the age of 27. Like Judas's 30 pieces of silver, so Johnson had his 30 pieces of shellac. So whatever happened to the 30th recording? Johnny asked. Ah, said Mr. Giggles. Listen, and you'll learn. After Johnson had recorded 29 songs, he knew he had just one more to do, and then the devil would come for his soul. So he did a runner. He fled from America and came here to England. He stayed upstairs at this very pub. But then, you see, after Johnson had sold his soul to the devil, he always played with his back to the audience. And folk who were backstage. But this is not so. Robert Johnson recorded 30 songs. He was contracted to do so by the devil. Go on, said Johnny. He didn't. Did he? He did, said Mr. Giggles. He convinced himself that he had outsmarted the devil had outrun him, that the devil would never find him here in England. But he did have his weaknesses. You see, he liked to drink, and he liked the ladies. And one night, in 1938, he was sitting here, half gone with the drink, carving his initials on a table, when a beautiful young woman walked in. She was a wonderful creature, and Johnson was entranced. He wanted her, and he engaged her in conversation. To cut a long story short, she agreed to have sex with him on condition that he sang her a song that she didn't know. So he took up his guitar and sang one of his songs, but she sang along with it. She knew it. So he tried another, and she knew that too. He ran right through all of his 29 songs. She knew them all. And she got up to leave. But he couldn't let her. There was something about her that fascinated him too much. So he said, I'll sing you a song that you don't know. You can't know it because I've never sung it before. And he sang his 30th song. And when he'd finished, she turned into the devil and whisked him off to hell, said Johnny Hooker. Even I could see that one coming. Oh, said Mr. Giggles. Was it that obvious? Johnny Hooker nodded. It's still a good story, though, he said. That's not the end of it, said Mr. Giggles. You see, I was here on that terrible night. I was Johnson's non-corporeal companion. And when he sang the 30th song, I recorded it. You recorded it? 
Johnny did blinkings at Mr. Giggles. You mean that you actually have Robert Johnson's 30th recording? It must be worth millions of pounds. Where is it? Ah, said Mr. Giggles. I don't have it anymore, and I'm glad that I don't, I can tell you. You see, there's something on that recording that shouldn't be on any recording. Terrible thing, so it is. Go on. Well, as you figured out, the beautiful young woman was really the devil in disguise. And when Johnson finished his song, the devil claimed him. And as he claimed him, the devil laughed. A hideous, inhuman, ghastly, godless laugh. And it got recorded on the record. The devil's laughter? Johnny shivered. Mr. Giggles nodded hairily. Now, he said, as you are probably aware, it is the habit of legendary musicians to die at the age of 27. Johnson died at 27, and after him we have Johnny Kidd out of Johnny Kidd and the Pirates, Pigpen out of Grateful Dead, Brian Jones, Jim Morrison, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Kurt Cobain, the list goes on. They all died age 27. It is not a coincidence. You see, they all had one thing in common. They were all Robert Johnson fans, and each of them, in their 27th year, got to hear something that they shouldn't have heard. They got to listen to Robert Johnson's 30th record, and they heard the devil's laughter. And if you hear the devil's laughter, you die, said Johnny Hooker. You die. That's what you do, said Mr. Giggles. Horrible business, eh? Horrible, said Johnny. But wait, said Johnny. What about the recording, said Johnny. Where is it now, said Johnny also. Where indeed? It wasn't to be found amongst the personal effects of the late Mr. Cobain, or so I am informed. I am also informed that a certain secret government agency set out to find it. This certain agency has apparently been searching for it for years. Johnny Hooker shook his head. I will just bet, he said, that there is not a single word of truth to any of that. I really, truly hate you. So I do. No, you don't. You love me, really. Johnny Hooker shook his head again and found that his glass was empty once more, although unaccountably so, as he did not recall emptying it. Grumbling grimly, he returned once more to the bar counter. O'Fagan was affixing up a poster to the wall. What's that? asked Johnny, feigning interest. Blues night on Tuesday, said O'Fagan. Local bands. You should come along. You play guitar, don't you? I do, said Johnny. Regularly, in here, on heavy metal nights. But I don't know of any decent blues bands around here. I never said they were decent, said O'Fagan. I only said they were local. I never even knew you had blues nights here, said Johnny, offering his glass for a refill. Haven't for years, said O'Fagan, receiving Johnny's glass. My daddy started them back in the 1930s, but there was a bit of bother, so he stopped them. Bit of bother, said Johnny. Fights in the bar and such like? Something like that, said O'Fagan, crossing himself and drawing Johnny's pint, which was no mean feat, as he did both with a single hand. But all the greats played the middleman. See that faded photo up there? And he did head gesturings. That's my daddy here in the bar, and Robert Johnson with him. Chapter 5 you left that beer undrunk, said Mr. Giggles, right there on the bar counter. You left it. I paid for it, said Johnny, as he strode on up the road. But why did you leave it? Why did you leave it? Mr. Giggles danced at Johnny's side. The sun shone down and birdies gossiped in the treetops. A lady in a straw hat, 
waiting at the bus stop, watched the young man striding by and talking to himself. Sad. She said to herself, Just leave it, Mr. Giggles, said Johnny. Just leave it. But why did you leave your pint? Johnny ceased his striding and glared at Mr. Giggles. You did it, he said. I know you did it. Did what? What? Blues night at the middleman. That photo behind the bar? I've drunk in that pub for years, and I've never seen that photo before. So you're implying that I somehow brought it into being? It's what you do to mess me up. Why don't you leave me alone? Because you need me, Johnny. That's why. You need me, Johnny? You do. I don't need you. I don't want you. I just want my own mind. I want to think my own thoughts, make my own choices. You wouldn't be able to manage on your own. Other people do. Other people are not like you. Let's go back to the pub. No, said Johnny. I'm going to the park. I don't like the park, said Mr. Giggles. The grass smells bad because the dogs all wee on it. Then I will go on my own. Please, let me go on my own. You might get lost or something. I'd best come along. One day, said Johnny, one day I will drive you out of my head. I really hope for your sake that you don't. And what is that supposed to mean? It means, said Mr. Giggles, that I am the lesser of a great many evils. If you were to drive me out, there's just no telling who or what might take up occupation in my absence. Johnny felt a nasty shiver creeping up his spine. I'm going to the park, he said. Gunnersbury Park is a beautiful park. Just off the Chistwick roundabout, if you're coming up the A4, it boasts many facilities. Two miniature nine-hole golf courses, pitch and putt, two bowling greens, five cricket pitches, one hockey pitch, 36 football pitches, six netball pitches, three rugby pitches, one lacrosse pitch, two putting greens, 15 hard tennis courts, a two-and-a-half-acre fishing pond, an ornamental boating pond, a riding school, dressing rooms, and refreshment pavilions. Add to this the quote-unquote big house, a museum packed with many wonders, a Japanese garden, a Doric temple, an orangery, and several Gothic follies. And it's open every day of the year, except Christmas Day. And you can even get married in the grounds and visit Princess Amelia's bathhouse. But more about her later. So it's well worth a visit. Johnny sat by the ornamental boating pond, smoking a hand-rolled ciggy and wearing the Trinidad and Tobago World Cup football shirt that he had purchased from a charity shop, but which, along with any description of himself, had escaped previous mention. Across from him, on the west shore, a park ranger named Kenneth Connor, who was not under any circumstances to be confused with the other Kenneth Connor, dragged a shopping trolley up from the water's edge and muttered swear words underneath his breath. All that Robert Johnson stuff, said Johnny. All that was just a story, wasn't it? There isn't really a 30th record with the devil's laughter on it, is there? You don't believe in the devil? I've never really thought about it. Now who's the liar? You think about things like God and the devil all the time. I don't think the devil exists. Tricky one, that, said Mr. Giggles. You know what they say, that the greatest trick the devil ever played was to convince people of his non-existence. That, and to get Boy George to the top of the charts, of course. So is the story true, or is it not? It depends on what you mean by true. Does it? Well, let us accept 
that what I mean by the word true is what actually happened. Sounds a bit ambiguous, said Mr. Giggles, crossing his eyes and sticking out his tongue. It is not ambiguous, said Johnny. Something either happened or it didn't. If only it were as simple as that. It is, said Johnny. And by your prevarication, I think it's safe to assume that it was not a true story. Well, you'd know, said Mr. Giggles. Because if I don't exist, it means that you made up the story. So, is it true or not? Johnny Hooker ground his teeth. We should go back to the pub, said Mr. Giggles. You could get very drunk and we could have a really good metaphysical discussion. Talk some really splendid toot. And you could tell me how I'm your bestest friend, again. Johnny fished a scrunched up piece of paper from his pocket. I'm going to apply myself to this, he said. The curious silence that both myself and O'Fagan experienced. The pregnant pause. It must mean something. I have nothing else to do with my life, so I will apply myself to this. Bravely said. And, since you will not leave me alone, you can help me. I already did. I identified da-da-dee-da-da as music, and I told you a pertinent story about Robert Johnson. Johnny Hooker rumpled his brow and puffed on his cigarette. Blues music is particularly da-da-dee-da-da, dee-da-da-dee, da-da-dee-da-da, da-da-da. Then you're definitely on the right track. You'll probably have it sorted by tea time. You think so? Oh, look, said Mr. Giggles. There appears to be a small child there drowning in the pond. He must have fallen out of a paddle boat. Why would you want to distract me? asked Johnny. I thought you were really trying to help. There really is a small child drowning, said Mr. Giggles, and he pointed. Johnny followed the direction of the hairy pointer. Somewhere near the middle of the pond and quite out of reach of the nearest paddle boat, someone small was splashing frantically. It is a child, cried Johnny. Someone's drowning there, he shouted. Man overboard, he bawled at the top of his voice. Someone do something. But nobody did. The paddlers kept on paddling and the strollers passed, strolled on. A child's drowning, shouted Johnny. You in the boat, there, behind you. You'd best dive in, said Mr. Giggles. Swim out there and save that child. You think so? No, I don't. You're a rubbish swimmer, and you'd probably drown. But someone has to do something. Johnny Hooker was kicking off his shoes. Oh, no, said Mr. Giggles. Don't be silly now, Johnny. You drew my attention to it. I thought it would cheer you up. What? Schreidenfraud. It's always cheering when someone's in a worse state than you are. No, hold on. But Johnny was now in the pond. He was waiting and shouting, stumbling and falling, rising and stumbling on. It wasn't deep, the ornamental pond. It only went down about three feet, even in the middle where the struggling child was. But a man can drown in two inches of water, or so we are told. And a swan's wing can break a grown man's arm, and the Great Wall of China can be seen from outer space. The boaters were now taking notice of Johnny. They were clapping their hands and laughing. None of them appeared to be noticing the drowning child at all. Johnny struggled onwards, stumbling, falling, rising, pointing, shouting, drowning child. At last he reached the middle of the pond. The drowning child was nowhere to be seen. Oh my God, cried Johnny. The child's gone under. The child's gone under. And Johnny dived and dived 
and dived again. Ranger Connor was quite apoplectic. It didn't take much to get him going nowadays. His temper wasn't what it had been. He always seemed to be on the edge. And now he'd got himself all wet. And so had Ranger Hawtrey. It had taken the two of them to drag Johnny Hooker from the pond. And Johnny had put up quite a struggle. He'd punched Ranger Connor right on the nose. Ranger Connor had retaliated with the move Count Dante, the world's deadliest man, called the Strike of the Electric Dragon, which was named after the lightning on Venus, apparently. Johnny Hooker was hauled ashore unconscious. And Johnny Hooker awoke in hospital. It was Brentford Cottage Hospital that Johnny Hooker awoke in. It's mostly for private patients now. Special patients, really. Johnny Hooker awoke to find himself struggling. Memories returned to him. The child in the ornamental pond, a park ranger with an attitude, a vicious blow to Johnny's groin, one sufficient to put him beyond consciousness. Ow! wailed Johnny, and then, help, because he could not move. He had been secured to the bed. He was indeed held within a straitjacket. Help, shouted Johnny. Somebody help me, please. A door that was closed then opened. A doctor appeared with a chart. This doctor approached Johnny's bed and viewed Johnny doubtfully. Doubtfully? Johnny viewed the doctor. Help me, please, he said. We're doing everything that we can to help you, said the doctor, and he tapped at his chart in a professional manner. Everything that we can. I'm all tied up here, said Johnny. Could you release me, please? There will be time enough for that later, I'm sure. The time is now, said Johnny. No, said the doctor. Regrettably not. Not? asked Johnny. Why not? Attempted suicide, said the doctor. Throwing yourself in the ornamental pond like that and assaulting the park rangers who tried to rescue you. I did no such thing. There was a child drowning. There was no child. There was no one but you in that pond. There was a child. No child. Let me free, said Johnny. Please let me free. You do have a bit of history with this sort of thing, don't you? Said the doctor. I haven't brought your notes. There are so many of them. Phew really heavy. And the doctor mind carrying some really heavy notes. We did call your mother, though. Apparently the police had to break into your house. You'd left her up turned on the bathroom floor. But she isn't pressing charges. Charges? Johnny said. And there was fear in his voice. No charges, said the doctor. But she did agree that you have become a danger to yourself and to others. So she has had you sectioned. Sectioned? Johnny Hooker said. Sectioned, said the doctor. Chapter 6 Johnny awoke the following day to find that things were quiet in his head. Very quiet indeed. Johnny lay without restraints upon a nice, neat hospital bed. It was in the quote-unquote special wing of Brentford Cottage Hospital. The wing that housed the quote-unquote special cases. Johnny had been in such wings before. He had been in this wing before. Johnny rolled over and blinked towards the window. Sunlight peeped in through it. There were no bars at the window. Up and away then, said Johnny, rising from the bed and making for the window. Or perhaps I'll stay, he continued, as he viewed the steely fixings and the high-security etchings on the glass. The plaster around the secure window looked quite fresh and new. 
It had recently needed replacing when a patient, a large red Indian, had thrown the water cooler out through the previous window. But that was another story. Johnny tried the door and found it locked. He returned to the bed and sat down upon it. And then he became fully aware of just how very quiet things were inside his head. Mr. Giggles, said Johnny, are you there? But answer came there none. Mr. Giggles? Silence. In his head. Light traffic sounds from without the window. Within the room and within his head. Silence. Oh, said Johnny. And then he said, damn. Damn, 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 went Johnny. Damn. He'd been drugged. Done up once more by the old antipsychotics. Johnny glanced all down at himself. Now fully, fully aware, he was fully aware of his attire. The foolish do-up-the-back hospital smock, the identity wristlet, the, Johnny checked his left arm, the elastoplast beneath which he would find the puncture marks. I have to get out of here, said Johnny, taking very deep breaths. I'm still up for that winning prize, me, he continued, rather startling himself as he did so for having a sense of purpose in his life was something new to him. Yes, I do want to win that prize, he furtherly continued. In fact, I am determined to do so, and in order to do so, I must certainly get out of here. There was a kind of simultaneous knocking, unlocking, and opening of the door, and a face peeped in, and a voice said, Were you talking to somebody in here? Ah, said Johnny. No, said Johnny. Not me. Never at all. The face entered Johnny's room. It entered upon a head, which was secured at the neck to a body, to which in turn two pairs of standard appendages were attached. The entire ensemble was of the female persuasion, the young and sightly female persuasion. Johnny looked up from his bed as the figure entered his room. It was a sightly figure, and no mistake about it. Short black hair and bright green eyes and the sweetest nose imaginable, the have to stop you there, said the nurse, for such was she. Stop me where? asked Johnny. You were looking at my nose, and you were smiling foolishly. It's a very sweet, please don't say it. Sweet? You said it, said the nurse. The bane of my life, this nose. You can't imagine what trouble it gets me into. No, said Johnny, I don't think I can. What about my mouth? asked the nurse. Very nice, said Johnny. Very silent film star, that mouth. Rather Theta Barra, in fact. And my tits? The nurse drew back her shoulders and thrust her breasts forward. Very nice, too, said Johnny. Very pert. I've nice legs as well, and a nice bum, and I have a tattoo on my bum. This is all very good to hear, said Johnny, who was now most perplexed. You are actually a nurse here, I suppose? not a patient. You naughty boy. I am Nurse Hollywood. I was a patient, but that was years ago. I am now a fully qualified nurse, and I can assure you that there is a great deal more to me than my sweet nose. I'm sure there is, said Johnny. We've already touched upon the tits and the bum. We'll take this no further, said Nurse Hollywood. I am more than just a sweet nose, and that is that. Johnny felt that this was probably very much the case as women who boast of having tattooed bums for the first time you meet them are probably, as they say, quote-unquote, up for it. Oh, 
said Nurse Hollywood. And don't you go getting any ideas about me being up for it just because I mentioned that I have a tattoo on my bum. As if I would, said Johnny. Could you tell me where my clothes are, please? I could, said the nurse. But I won't. There'd be no point, as you will not be allowed to wear them for a while. You're having tests this morning. Are you here to test me? No, said the nurse. I'm here simply to introduce myself, as I will be your professional carer during your stay here, and to ask you what you'd like for breakfast. Ah, said Johnny. I'd like the full English, if that is on the go. Two sausages, two bacon, two eggs, two toast, black pudding, beans, and a fried slice. Nurse Hollywood clutched one of those hospital clipboards to her pert bosoms. She took up the pen that was attached to it by a string and made certain notes. Am I getting the full English? Johnny asked. Or did I just fail one of the tests? We don't like to use the F word here said Nurse Hollywood. Nobody fails. It's just that some take longer to succeed than others. I'm a very fast learner, said Johnny. You'd be surprised at all the things I've learned so far. For instance, I've learned that life isn't fair, that I am a have-not, and that I have absolutely no skills at all when it comes to predicting the future. However, I do remain cautiously optimistic. Nurse Hollywood made further notes. Something told Johnny that he was not making a particularly good first impression, and that the chances of and that the chances of seeing that bum tattoo were getting smaller by the minute. I'd like you to have this, said Nurse Hollywood, peeling an underpage from her clipboard and presenting it to Johnny. Your phone number? Johnny asked. A questionnaire of sorts. While I fetch your breakfast, I'd like you to fill it in. Do you think you could do that for me? Not without a pen, said Johnny. Nurse Hollywood presented Johnny with a crayon. No pointy objects, said Johnny pointedly. I know the drill. Yes, said the nurse. You do have something of a history, don't you? But things have changed quite a lot since the last time you were admitted. I think you will find the new techniques and treatments will have a positive effect. Johnny said nothing but nodded as if he agreed. Well, we'll see. Do what you can with the questionnaire, and I'll be back with your breakfast. And with that, she left. Sweet nose, green eyes, and tattooed bum to boot, as it were. Johnny rose quietly and listened at the door. Assured that she had gone, he tried the handle. Well, there was always an outside chance that she might have forgotten to lock it. Naughty, naughty! Sighing and cursing by turn, he viewed the questionnaire. Of course, if Mr. Giggles had been there, he would have been a great help. Mr. Giggles just loved such questionnaires. He was capable of coming up with some most inspired answers. Although, Johnny recalled the last time he'd been sectioned. Five years before, and also because of his mum. He'd been given a form to fill out then, and he'd taken Mr. Giggles' advice. Things hadn't gone too well for Johnny after that. But then, for now, there was no Mr. Giggles. Mr. Giggles's chatter had been suppressed by the drugs that now saturated Johnny's thinking parts. That chemically altered his perception. It was a very difficult business for Johnny, this, because although he did hate Mr. Giggles, well, some of the time, well, most of the time, he really hated being drugged up against his will, because he knew, just knew, that with the drugs inside him, 
Although he felt certain that he was thinking straight, he was not. The drugs don't work. They make things worse. Johnny sang this softly. At length, and at not too long a one at that, Johnny perused the questionnaire. He knew better than to ignore it, or screw it up, or eat it. Compliance was the name of the game, as it so often is when one is locked up. List five things you like about yourself, Johnny read, to himself, not out loud. Johnny could not think of one, so Johnny tried to think of someone that he liked so he could list five things that he liked about them. This questionnaire is really beginning to depress me, said Johnny to himself. And he thought once more of Mr. Giggles. And he shrugged and made notes upon the questionnaire. And at a length that was neither too long, nor too short, but somewhere comfortably in between, there was another simultaneous knocking, unlocking, and opening of the door. And a face peeped in. And then all the rest made an entrance. Johnny smiled up, then stopped smiling. Who are you? he asked. I am Nurse Cecil, said Nurse Cecil. Nurse Cecil was a very large nurse, of the male persuasion. He had that broken-nosed, useful look about him that bouncers, or door supervisors as they prefer to be known, have about them. He carried a tray. It did not look like a breakfast tray, as there was no breakfast upon it, just a sort of napkin that bulged slightly in the middle. Oh, said Johnny. I was expecting Nurse Hollywood. Nurse Hollywood. Black hair, green eyes, sweet nose. You must know the nose. Know the nose, said Nurse Cecil, thoughtfully. She's getting me the full English breakfast, said Johnny. I'll just bet she is, said Nurse Cecil. And she'll probably want to sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow while she feeds it to you, don't you think? I don't think so, said Johnny. No, said Nurse Cecil. And nor do I, because we do not have a Nurse Hollywood. We have no female nurses here. But she gave me this questionnaire. And John reached for the questionnaire, which was there on the bed, but which wasn't. I think we're going to have to up your medication, said Nurse Cecil. And he removed the napkin from his tray to reveal a large and lethal-looking hypodermic.